0: In this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Russ Dargento, founder and CEO of Fintrix. This is going to be an interesting conversation because he has some interesting insights into single family offices, multifamily offices, the RA universe, and I want to talk about fundraising from that particular community. I also want to talk about Russ's entrepreneurial stories and the lessons going through this. And then talking about, uh, I don't know, maybe some stuff that 51 Labs is going through and how we think about mission, vision, values, purpose, uh, hiring, and all the other parts that it takes to run a business. So, Russ, thanks a lot for coming on here and love to turn it over to you to first get an overview of what is FinTrex.
1: I started the business in, in 2014, uh, basically on the back of a, of a personal pain point. Uh, that that I had raising money in the hedge fund space, I felt the the data and the research and the tech that was available in order to access the family office market at that time for my needs to, to raise capital was really thin and quite archaic. So that was the genesis of, of going out and, and starting what today has uh, morphed into, into FinTrix. At present, uh, we provide really deep dive and comprehensive data and research on the global family office and registered investment advisor markets, empowering our our end users to to access uh, analytics and information uh, and personalized, humanized data uh, about the individuals within these firms to raise money, network, book more meetings and um, get to this data and drive better outcomes uh, with more efficiency.
0: So if, if you're like a private equity firm or does it also work for like independent sponsors who are trying to raise equity for a particular deal?
1: It does, yeah. So our typical end user is like a hedge fund or private equity firm, venture, uh, traditional long only managers who are raising money for fund structures or uh, individual deals, private companies as well, sponsors who are looking to um, access the the private wealth ecosystem. Maybe their background is has been in the institutional world, or they've found success uh, via family offices and RIAs, which you know, I'm sure you're aware a rapidly growing uh, part of the, of the capital stack. So we really solve for that. It's an area where the, the information is very fragmented, tough to, to wrap your arms around. And so we really kind of sit in the, uh, in the middle of that problem uh, and bring that data and in insight into a very organized output and, and platform.
0: About how many RAAs, family offices do you have on the platform? And like, what's on the other side of the market?
1: We have we covered today on the family office side uh, about 3,700 unique firms, uh, about 22 or 23,000 uh, individuals that uh, work at at those single and multifamily offices. We really focus our efforts on the folks around the investment part uh, of the family office arm. So you know, CIOs, investment committee members, decision makers around uh, allocations. On the RIA space, uh, it's fully encompassing. If if the RIA is is currently registered, they're in our platform. Uh, Same with the registered reps, so the individuals at these firms. And also within that RIA product is uh, uh, custodians, uh, broker-dealers, et cetera. In addition to that, we cover the holding data, um, so the individual stocks and and ETFs held by uh, these advisors.
0: What's the ballpark on how much it costs for like a private equity firm to register, or I mean, who do you charge?
1: Uh, so we charge the end user, so the 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 fund managers or, you know, the large uh, firms that are trying to, to gain access to family office data or the RIA data. And that can range, you know, anywhere from uh, 16,000 uh, up, and we have some customers paying us uh, north of 250,000 per year to access the, the platform. Um, it really depends on uh, the size of the firm and the amount of uh, of usage and seats that yep. they need. It's a moving target depending on the amount of data accessed and also how they access it, right? So they can access the data through our platform or CRM integrations or uh, APIs.
0: Cool. So what's a snapshot on how, like, how many people are full-time at the firm? Where were you at five years ago? Where are you at today?
1: Uh, five years ago, uh, let's see. Uh, it was just myself five years ago, um, just making our first hire right around that time, actually, um, who has been a, a really impactful person in my life and for the business, uh, Chris Kylie, who now is our VP of sales, just a really unique guy. He joined us right out of, of school and is really impactful. So uh, today we have just north of 100 full-time Folks, as, as part of the, of the company, we have an amazing team. Our team doubled uh, this past year as we, you know, rolled out the RIA product, which is our second offering. Uh, the company was was really started on the back of the family office product. so uh, it's been quite the journey. You know, I think you and I had, had chatted about it prior, but you know, I bootstrapped the business uh, up until uh, almost exactly a year ago. Um, when we raised our Series A. So you know, that process of bootstrapping up to, you know some point of, of critical mass was a really interesting one, but one that I would not do over uh, if I had the, the opportunity. I think you know there's a lot of good that comes from that. just in terms of operating the business with some fiscal responsibility, learning how to do a number of different things throughout the business, that's been um, I think uh, advantageous.
0: Uh, who are the publicly announced investors in the, in the firm like on CrunchBase?
1: whoever's in it. So so the the series A was led by by two individuals. So uh Jason Krantz and and Joe uh Marisola. So uh, Jason Krantz is the founder and CEO, or actually, just became chairman of the board. I think uh, a couple of months ago, of Definitive Healthcare, uh, which is a, a actually a very similar uh, company to ours. It's a data business, but in the healthcare space, so on you know claims and surgeons and doctors, etc. Same thing, very fragmented, uh, vertical, vertically integrated in their domain. And you know, I, I felt like he was just the perfect. Um, target in terms of like who we wanted to, to bring on uh, as an investor for us. Um, an amazing operator, a product guy like myself, I, I think I can I can learn a lot uh, from him. But he bootstrapped his business initially and, and brought it all the way to, I think they raised a couple of rounds of financing and went public last year uh, on the Nasdaq. So just a, a great uh, amount of experience there. And Joe Marisola, uh, also uh, in that Series A, and he is the chief revenue officer at uh, Definitive. So with him, you know, we really have been able to tap his insight and knowledge uh, yeah. and expertise on scaling go-to-market.
0: And the A round on the news was nine million.
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: So, I mean, let's just dive in right there. I think it's really interesting. On you know the what types of founders and companies should take. Venture capital earlier, and which ones should not? What have you learned through the fundraising process, and and how founders should think about it?
1: It's a great question. You know, I think it's multifaceted, um, depending on the person and their personal situation, um, and and kind of where they are in their life. Um, I felt like for me, uh, the best path was to uh, try to do it on my own, see if there was a business here rather than just kind of going out and diluting straight away and raising a bunch of money and having a high burn rate and all of that. I wanted to kind of get my hands dirty and, and really kind of learn and understand all parts of the business. Um, And and that is the only way to do it when you're, when you're bootstrapped. So um, it's difficult. It takes longer. Um, But, you know, for me, uh, I learned a lot about myself in that process too. And in that journey, it was, it became clear to me that, you know, one area that I was very strong at that, that I uh, was not aware uh, was, you know, around product and building product and, you know, kind of innovating on uh, the iterative part of, of building a product. So um, that was really great. How did you evolve, like thinking about product and, 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 and running that? Yeah. And, and I, I just, one thing I would say is if, if you are going to, to, to bootstrap, I, I do feel like you need to be technical, you know, as an engineer or a, a creator of uh, of product. If you're neither of the two, you know, I think that can be very, very difficult. The way that I I think about product, and you know, I, I feel like I was a bit fortunate because I, I really started to understand the the creation of and uh, iterating and building the product quite early on in in my journey. Uh, but I was coming into the business uh, when founding Ventrix as really a, a sales a sales guy, a salesperson. So, you know, it was it's like back and forth motion of build take two weeks and and cold call and sell and build and sell and build and sell. And so that kind of rinse and repeat motion um, allowed me to get some traction early and create, although small, (laughs) very small in the early days, create some revenue, right? To like invest back in the business and You know, data and software businesses can be really high margin uh, with a ton of leverage. So it doesn't take a ton um, just to get enough of attraction to um, to kind of get that get that ball moving down down the field. So, you know, I I don't think there's a a perfect answer there uh, on on which way to go. You know, I I would say, obviously, over the past probably 10 years, although it's compressed a bit recently, you know, money has been basically free. So um, if I was starting the business, you know, a a couple of years ago, it might have been a different story.
0: Well, let's uh, let's maybe summarize this point on like just the founding stage, you know, pre-investment. Which are what advice do you have for startup tech founders that you wish you would have known when starting the business? You know, what are maybe three to five tangible things that they could think about?
1: Becoming very very comfortable with risk, right? So you know, I think we're really hardwired to be uh, risk adverse. But really, when you think about it, like the risk of ruin is somewhat low, and if it does happen, uh, it's okay. It's not like you know, it's it's overly catastrophic. It's like as an entrepreneur, you fail, you know, often. Um, so, you know, that's something that at the beginning I was really uncomfortable with. But over time, like the the more risk on, uh, I was able to be in the comfort around that. Uh, I found that to be very very helpful um, for me. Um, I think another thing is, you know, we all do this, or I I know I did and and probably still do, you know, you, you kind of are in this comparison loop with others, right? So I remember probably like 2015, 2016, it was a big event, might've been like my 15 year high school reunion. And, you know, all of my friends were climbing the corporate ladder, getting great jobs and all of this. And I was like, you know, in this office by myself trying to to build this business and that was really trying and, and difficult. And so you know, I think you're going to uh, come across these hurdles where it's like, it's kind of easy to throw in the towel at times. Um, but for me, like what looks, uh, I think the, the best way to, to say it, I think, I don't uh, maybe it was Naval Ravikant who, yeah. who said it. Um, the founder of AngelList was like, find something that, you know, looks like work to others and feels like play to you. And so I think if you find that sweet spot, it's a really nice place to be as a as an entrepreneur.
0: I've literally been going through that in the past three months as we did like, you know, a review of 2022 and planning and we're like, we're at year four. Like, shouldn't we be double the size? Shouldn't we be three times the size? Like, what are we doing wrong? Are we bad entrepreneurs? And then, and then we go to, you know, you do the holidays and you see your family, you see your friends and you're naturally comparing yourself. You know, how is the business today versus three and four years ago? I'm like, okay, We're a lot better than we were three and four years ago. You know, And thinking about the team. We actually have a team now versus it was just us a few years ago with some freelancers. And then other questions around like, well, because of the business, we can do this together. And my co-CEO and wife, like we didn't have that a few years ago. So that's a big check. Or another thing like, do we have a chance to give to our community? yeah, we spend five plus hours a week on our nonprofit. Okay. What else do we care about? Like we care about training for our endurance events. Like we don't have that. We couldn't do that if we had a job, like all this stuff. So we had to like pause and compare ourselves to two years ago, three years ago, and four years ago. And when we had jobs and like, okay, maybe we're not growing as fast as we want. We need to change some things, but big picture, like we're living the life that we want.
1: I think that's, that's all valid. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, one big piece of it is like, it's, it's hard. Um, and you're going to have ups and downs and, and days where it's uh, the world feels like it's uh, it's caving in and, and other times there's like incredible euphoria. And then there's days where there's like two or three of those in, in the same day. But, you know, at the end of the day for me, and then I don't know how you think about it. I'd love to to hear it. But, you know, at this stage of the business, we're in this like really rapid growth stage we're we're finding amazing traction um the market is is really responding incredibly well to to what we're doing um so you know i'm we're kind of past that like in you know, three people in a room uh trying to to figure it out stage so it's we work as hard as we can but you know i talk to the team all the time about if we can focus on you know meaningful work and meaningful relationships i feel like everything else will will kind of fall into place and you know when i talk to them about it what i mean by that is meaningful work like not in the sense that we're saving puppies. I love puppies. I have a couple of dogs myself, but meaningful work. Like, does this matter to you? Are you passionate about it? Does this really mean something to you when you sit down every day and talking to prospects and to customers and creating products and all these things? Like, is it impactful to you? Does it matter? And meaningful relationships. It's like... You know, I'm sure you've been there as well. But like, you're chasing a goal and you're chasing it down like like hell, and then you get it, and then for you know three hours, it's you're three hours later. It's like,
0: all right, what's next? Yeah,
1: you know, what's next? Yeah, exactly. So it's like meaningful relationships is is a big piece of it for me, Um, and and I feel our our team really embodies that. Like we have an amazing group of people here. And, you know, I, I love working, working with these people and and lining up b- beside them every day and trying to figure things out and solve problems and, you know, uh, build amazing product and, and disrupt yeah. an industry. And so that part of it for me is like super fun. And I think as your team grows, you'll find that to be like a really rewarding part of it as well as like watching, especially younger people on the team that are kind of newer into into their career and watching them um, yeah. ascend is for me, it's like super, super rewarding. Like, I, I love that part of the of the role.
0: How did you navigate that journey of discovering mission, vision, and values? And I'm asking that because we've been going through that in the past 60 days, because yeah. I'm like, what is our mission? To make LinkedIn posts for private equity firms so they can get it, raise another billion dollar fund? Like, is this really why we want to wake up in the morning? You know, the lives that are changing, you know, for the portfolio companies, if they're able to grow and and I and we went through four years of our LinkedIn posts and our videos to remind ourselves why we do what we do.
1: I think that's a really valid point because in, in both of our businesses, like you know, we're not nonprofits, or you know, we're not doing uh, you know, if you looked at it from like a, a charitable uh, angle or something like that, right? Like we're businesses that are here to to try to uh, create revenue and and um, build commerce and all these things. So. You know, for us, I talked to the team about, you know, can you find a purpose in, in what we're doing and in the lives that we're impacting like all throughout the ecosystem? And that might be starting internally here. Like we're creating jobs, we're creating opportunity for, you know, our team here to create skills and build themselves from a professional standpoint. Like I love that piece of it. Um, But also all the people we're impacting on the other side of the trade, right? Like our end users, our investors, people that they're raising capital uh, on behalf of or money that is raised and compounded over time. Like I know those things kind of come back to fiscal topics, but you know, that's kind of the business that we're in is the investment business uh, and providing that data and research. So, you know, I I think it's a tricky one, you know, for, for me, it's, it's just kind of always comes back to not just chasing the carrot, but enjoying like that minutia in the day-to-day journey of, Um, what it's all about to build a company, A, and B, be a part of something that is inherently bigger than anyone here and and all of us, right? So I think there's a lot of joy in that too. I think like inherently humans want to build and they want to create and they want to, you know, take something from nothing and look back and be like, oh my God, like we just created this business that is doing X, Y, and Z. I think there's a lot of satisfaction and purpose in that. If you
0: think about kind of a different topic on on fundraising, what are some insights that you have seen from the single family office, multifamily office environment? And what, you know, private equity firms, private credit firms, anybody who's kind of raising money from the buyout market, really, what are some insights that they should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, so um, I think, you know, a couple of things that we've seen that have been Really impactful. I guess if you you look at it from like a a best angle or best practice standpoint, right? Our business as a whole, and it doesn't really matter whether you're in, you know, PEVC hedge fund, you know, the list goes on. It's a trust-based business. As you know, you're not going to talk somebody into writing a, you know, a $50 million ticket, right? So, for us, we we focus a lot on providing the tools and the avenues for our end users at, you know, a PE fund, for example, to personalize and humanize that outreach. We found that to be like the most impactful piece of that, right? And so that can manifest itself in a number of different ways. And my advice would be the more personal, the better. Um, and so that might be like alumni roots or previous places of employment or passions and interests outside of work even things like, you know, it sounds trite, but, you know, fans of different sports teams or uh, a recent event, uh, mentioning in a recent news article about uh, something that is applicable to them, like that type of stuff, super, super impactful. And, you know, like you're the same way I would assume, but you're getting peppered uh, all the time, right? With, you know, emails. And it's like, when I have an email that comes across my desk in my inbox, that's like super personal, I'm far more likely to to reply to that because you can tell that there was some time and effort put into that. Um, that's one thing. You know, I think another would really be like on the PE side, VC side is especially now with, you know, some of this compression is to be able to show that and highlight that you've returned capital sometime in the past, you know, handful of years, five, 10 years. You know, I think that is going to be massively Useful and impactful for uh, fund managers to show that they've been able to uh, return investor capital um, as they're out there raising subsequent rounds. Really difficult, I think, to to kind of hang your shingle out, raise a fund four if in you know fund two and three during that really frothy time that there was no capital returned. I think that is is going to be a very difficult uh, thing to do. And you know, la- lastly, um, just kind of one more point on that. You know, we see like in our business, like with these ebbs and flows of the market that people like, they almost feel like they can turn off and on the fundraising relationship building aspect of, of their business. So it's like, hey, you know, when we're fundraising, I wanna be out there talking to to investors, family offices, single, multi RAs, et cetera. And we're not like, we're, we're good doesn't really work like that. It's an ongoing kind of evergreen relationship building process, right? I mean, it takes time. And so, you know, that would be one uh, really big piece of advice is like that relationship aspect and in, in sales of, of raising money is a ongoing, never-ending process, whether you're raising a fund at that time or, or not. Maybe
0: shifting gears a little bit over to like the personal journey and personal story you've had. Like what are some, what's some interesting just some light, interesting life stories that you've had.
1: My background is really diverse. Um, so I was a, a baseball player in, in college. And while I was uh, at school, so I went to, to the University of, of Connecticut. And while I was there, I really got into kind of two different things that I think kind of led me to, to, to this business. And one was I became like enthralled with poker. It was like during that poker boom, I would consume anything I could get my hands on. Was playing a lot and really became like fascinated and obsessed with like game theory and highly leveraged uh, decision making. And um, I think there's so many parallels to that. Just that whole process to operating a business and growing a business and. You know, the compounding effects of, um, you know, highly leveraged positive decisions over and over and over and and how that works. That's been like super helpful um, for me. Um, and you know, the second thing was while uh, when I came out of school, you know, all I really knew was uh, baseball. You know, I'd spent my entire life on a baseball diamond since I was, you know, seven years old or whatever. Um, and I loved the idea of like numbers and 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 data. Um, even back then, I was kind of geeking out on on that stuff. I had this idea where I was going to build like a a basically Fintrix, but not for RIAs and and family offices um, in this fragmented world. But it was about the top uh, high school baseball prospects throughout the country in each class. So uh, just to kind of shrink the story down real quick, um, when you are in sophomore, junior and senior in high school, you go to these showcases, basically pro scouts and college coaches come, they evaluate you. 60-yard dash, how hard you throw from the outfield, off the mound, et cetera. Basically like hard skills. But when you leave there, you go back to your high school team, your summer ball team, and no one really knows how you did at that time, right? So I had this idea where we could track these fragmented statistics on these players and um, bring that into a platform and then like sell... Subscriptions to pro scouts and college coaches all throughout the country, etc. So it was really great. I made some great strides in like understanding how this type of stuff works with like fusing data and tech. Did that for a couple of years. Partnered up with a really large company out of Iowa uh, that basically owns that market of of these showcases. Um, and so that to me like turned me on to wait a second if we can if you can like take a a world where all these people want access or need access to a specific vertical set of, of data or research, but that there's no great central resource or central resource at all to get it. And you can pull that into something that's super organized, easy to query. And then you can like fuse that with tech to make it smart and give you alerts and personalize it. That is a really interesting model. That turned me on to that. And, you know, I ended up applying it to this domain here. But I think it's, candidly, like it's definitive healthcare, that's their business too, right? But in the healthcare data space. So I think that can be applied to so many different verticals. I, I just love that model. It's it's a, a hybrid of uh, of software and data. I think it's, it's, a, it's a really great uh, way to think about it. That's awesome.
0: And it's interesting to see how your current business, you know, you laid the foundations of how you think about problem solving early on, like through the experience of actually feeling it as playing baseball and then thinking bigger about the problems of finding quality talent. And then, you know, it's because it, it, it makes me think about this question of like, is it, are you, are you 10 X talent presenting a 10 X opportunity and what's Mm -hmm. the highest and best leverage of those skills and experience? It also makes me think larger point about how people become entrepreneurs which is, I mean, I'm seeing it now. It's not like, oh, let me go find a random problem. No, like go experience the problems in a company, in an industry, but having that mindset at the front of your mind, which is, hey, there's got to be a better way of doing this.
1: That's so interesting. I was reading something the other day. I don't remember where it was, Um, but it was talking about exactly what you said, but kind of on the inverse of it. So, you know, what you're referring to and, and really what my background is, is like I was out in the real world, you know, hitting this up against this pain point day in and day out and was like, there's got to be a better way to do this because I'm just one, you know, schmohawk in a huge world uh, of, of you know, financial services. If I need this information and I can't get it, there's others for, for sure, right? So that's one way, exactly what you're saying. But then there's this other side where it's like, all of these successful businesses have been launched and founded out of inside of current businesses where they're building a, solving for a pain point inside the actual business and like building something for their own internal use at the company, which spins out and becomes a product itself, right? Like, You know, let's say like you're having trouble with churn or whatever, and you're trying to build like an internal homegrown system that alerts you when, you know, a certain customer hasn't logged in for X amount of time and you're trying to create alerts, like something like that. And then, you know, a a churn platform would, would spin out of that. Right. So I think that's super interesting too, where it's like internal inside of companies, Hey, let's build this internal tool that tracks X, Y, and Z. And it's like, Hey, wait a second. This is actually like, could be its own product um, and and send that out that way, which is kind of the opposite of launching the business on the back of a pain point, but it's like building an internal solution inside of the business that also becomes a product.
0: Episode one, enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Cheers. All right. See ya.